Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. This conference call is live and unedited. Our experts are given only six minutes to present. This is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find the discussion to be informative, provocative, and entertaining. What Happens Next is designed to be politically neutral, so listeners can draw their own conclusions. I end the program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker. This Sunday's program covers three topics, the economy, comedy, and police unions. Our first speaker is Michael Moscow, who is the retired CEO of the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank. You may recall that Michael spoke on what happens next a few months ago when he explained the Fed's radical measures to stimulate the economy. Since his last presentation, the stock market has surged along with other asset prices. I hope to learn from Michael today if he thinks that the high asset prices are due to the Fed's actions, the government fiscal stimulus, and or changes in expectations on the path of recovery. Our second speaker is Matthew Friend. Matthew is a recent graduate of NYU and is now a professional comedian and impressionist. Matthew cannot practice his trade the way he did previously because New York City's comedy clubs have closed. Comedy has gone virtual, and the shows that Matthew is producing are heavily edited, short, and punchy. I want to know if this stylistic change is the future of comedy. What happens next then pivots to policing and police unions. Rick Banks and I chose this topic because we want to learn more about why the current disciplinary process fails to remove bad cops from the police force. Given the current public outcry about police brutality, what kind of criminal justice reforms will regain the public trust? Our first speaker in this police segment is Julius Givens from the Chicago Police Department. Julius recently announced in a public letter that he was resigning from Chicago's local police union. I want to hear from Julius about how police unions operate and what is the union's role in everyday policing. Our second speaker is Will Jones, who is a history professor at the University of Minnesota. Will 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 discuss how police unions protect bad cops and what we can do about that. Our next speaker is Kate Levine, who is an associate professor of law at Yeshiva University's Cardoza Law School. Kate believes that all criminal defendants should get equal treatment. Today, police officers get better treatment than an average citizen. Instead of reducing police officer rights, Kate will discuss her proposal to enhance criminal defendants' rights to those currently available to cops. Ben Levin will speak next. Ben is an associate professor of law at the University of Colorado, Boulder Law School. Ben will speak about the benefits of public sector unions and how we can reform the police unions in particular. Our final speaker is Rob Harris, who is the director of the Los Angeles Police Protective League. Rob will explain how to improve policing outcomes by such reforms as rethinking which non-emergency calls require a police response, establishing a national use of force standard, and creating a database for bad cops. I'm going to do an experiment in the What Happens Next format. For the previous 27 weeks, I've had all the speakers give their six-minute presentations and follow the prepared remarks with a question and answer period for all speakers at the end. Today, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to ask Michael Moscow questions immediately after he speaks and do the same for comedian Matthew Friend. After all of the speakers on policing finish, there will be a question and answer period for that segment together. As always, I will encourage all of today's speakers to ask each other questions. It's just more fun that way.
If anyone in the audience has questions, please email me or Rick Banks during the program, and we will try to work those questions in. Each month since the beginning of What Happens Next, I've made some observations about the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Report. Friday's release was another fascinating glimpse at the current economic environment. The headline number from the Establishment Survey was cautiously optimistic with employment increasing by 661,000 jobs. And there were revisions to the previous two months, adding another 145,000 jobs for a total of an 800,000 job improvement. That said, we are still down 10.7 million jobs from pre-pandemic levels, with a nearly even split of newly unemployed persons and individuals who have left the workforce. The unemployment rate is now 7.9%, down a half a percent on the month, which overall is pretty, still pretty darn good, considering where we are. Here's what I found surprising in the employment report. Number one. 23% of all employees were working remotely in September, down about 2% of the month, and down from a peak of 35% in May. Teleworking is a function of educational attainment. 42% of college-educated workers telecommute versus 15% for some college and only 8% for high school graduates. Teleworking is also a function of your industry, with finance, law, and professional services mostly online, while manufacturing, other services, and healthcare are nearly all back in person. Industries that showed the greatest employment improvement this past month were in those industries that had been hardest hit by the pandemic, with half of all employment gains coming just from leisure and hospitality. The healthcare sector is still down over a million jobs since February, which is rather odd given this is a healthcare crisis. I expect this issue will resolve itself quickly in the months ahead. There was also a surge of individuals who voluntarily left their jobs this month, matching pre-pandemic levels. Voluntary job leaving is a sign of labor market strength because it indicates that the lever is confident in his prospects for finding a new job. In conclusion, the job market is improving and is about halfway back to normal. That said, the pace of improvement in the labor market is slowing. Using the establishment survey, the gains over the past three months were 1.8 million, 1.5 million, and 660,000 jobs. Again, pretty darn good, but slowing. This call is being recorded. Let me turn it over to my co-host, Rick Banks, who will make some brief opening remarks. Rick, fire away. Pleasure to be here today. Uh, as Larry mentioned, we have three topics on the agenda. Uh, first is economics, uh, and this is a recurring uh, theme here because uh, the economic issues are going to remain important. We might have debate about whether balancing short-term or uh, about how to balance uh, short-term economic interests and health considerations. What is certainly the case, though, is that the economic challenges will persist long after the health issues uh, associated with COVID have been resolved. Uh, therefore, we need to focus in a long-term basis on the economic issues confronting the society, uh, both the performance of the stock market, but also, as people call it, the real economy. The second topic, one that I'm very much looking forward to, is a discussion about police unions, uh, which is an issue that we also will be returning to over time. Police unions, as with all worker unions, can provide great benefits for workers. That cannot be doubted. It's also the case, though, that these unions are in tension uh, with the interests of their citizens uh, and of the community that they serve. One question that I'm looking to have addressed today is what is the depth of that tension between the police union's role as a protector of workers on one hand and the obligations of police officers to further the interests of community members on the other? And the second question is, how do we reconcile the interest, or can we reconcile the interest of communities and those of unions? 
how substantial or significant must the reform be, and what sorts of reforms uh, should we uh, uh, aim to aim to bring about in order to craft or 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 reshape police unions so that they further the public good? The third subject of today is one that we don't often have on this show, but which I think we do need more of. Uh, we need some comic relief. Uh, certainly, uh, now more than ever, uh, comedy can be a balm for the soul, and that is certainly true today. Back to you, Larry. Thanks, Rick. Okay, let's get started. Um, our first speaker is Michael Moscow. As I mentioned, uh, Michael was the CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Welcome back, Michael. Please go ahead. Thank you, Larry. I'll focus my comments on the economic outlook and monetary policy. Uh, there have been some important changes uh, recently in monetary policy. There's an important connection that might not seem obvious between the economic outlook and monetary policy, because when a central bank sets monetary policy, they must look ahead. They have to forecast the economy and then decide whether they're satisfied with the outlook or whether they want to influence that outlook using their monetary policy tools. So the outlook is crucial to the formulation of monetary policy. Well, forecasting anything is very difficult, as I'm sure most of you on this call realize. I always refer to three rules of forecasting. First, never forecast unless you have to. Second, if you have to forecast, do it often. And third, give a number or a date but never both. Well, to make the Fed's job more complicated, they not only have to forecast the economy, but also the impact of their monetary policy actions on the economy. Milton Friedman said monetary policy operates with long and variable lags. And this helps explain why central bankers come out with different conclusions when they look at the same background data. For example, we can look at the data that the Fed makes public four times a year of the forecasts of the 15 members of the Federal Open Market Committee without mentioning names. Time doesn't permit me to give specifics, but I can tell you that if there are wide ranges in the forecasts among the 15 members, and the forecasts change significantly over time. Well, looking at the current forecasts, the two key assumptions are, one, when we get a vaccine or vaccines that are widely distributed and recognized as effective, and two, whether we get another stimulus program. My assumption is that we get a vaccine by the first half of next year, and we get a stimulus program enacted by the first quarter of next year. Well, given these two assumptions, the economy will continue to improve, but at a slower pace than we saw in the third quarter that just ended. We have now recouped two-thirds of the sharp decline in GDP, and next year we will likely grow between 35 and 4% real, well above potential growth, which is about 2%, and of course significantly above the decline in growth this year of 3.7%. By the way, as long as we grow above potential, the unemployment rate will decline. The Fed believes that we will not return to 4% unemployment until 2023. Goldman Sachs says 2025. Let me now turn to the longer term changes in the economy that the Fed believes have important implications for how monetary policy should be conducted in the future. And I'll mention two. First, the general level of interest rates has fallen in the United States and throughout the world, which is important to monetary policy because the Fed 
has less room to support the economy by cutting interest rates during economic downturns. And second, the sensitivity of price inflation to labor market tightness is very low relative to earlier periods. This change is one of the reasons that the Fed and other central banks have not not achieved their inflation targets. As a result of these longer-term changes in the economy, the Fed has made significant changes in its long-run goals and strategy. And I'll mention two. First, it's adopted flexible average inflation targeting, which addresses the downward bias to inflation associated with proximity to the effective lower bound, or zero. Monetary policy's aim is now to achieve inflation moderately over 2% for a time to compensate for periods when inflation is persistently below 2%. In other words, the Fed will accommodate rather than offset inflationary pressures moderately moderately over 2%. It's abandoning its prior approach of preemptively raising rates before inflation hits 2%. We used to say that the Fed took away the punch bowl when the party was just getting going. Well, that is not appropriate or applicable anymore. Second, the Fed now now defines its strategy goal of maximum employment as a broad-based and inclusive goal considering a wide range of labor market indicators and not just the unemployment rate. And this should be helpful to groups that face the greatest structural challenges. These changes in its long-run goals and strategy are illustrated quite clearly in the Fed's statement after the September 16th meeting, which is its first uh, meeting since they made changes in their longer-term goals and strategy. And I'll quote, the committee expects it will be appropriate to maintain the current target range, zero to one-quarter percent, until labor market conditions have reached maximum employment and inflation has risen to 2% and is on track to moderately exceed 2% for some time. Well, let me conclude by pointing out some risks to this new longer-term goals and strategy. Lower for longer interest, rate, interest rates risk causing problems for financial stability, which can result in higher inflation than desired. When the Fed says that it will keep rates at zero for several years, market participants are likely to take on more risk. Robert Kaplan, president of the Dallas Fed, dissented at the September 16th meeting because he wants greater rate flexibility once the economy is on track to achieve maximum employment and price stability. Eric Rosengren, president of the Boston Fed, believes that the Fed will have to address financial stability aspects over the next couple of years. He focuses on the commercial real estate market and is concerned that developers will reach for yield and do more risky projects. So the key risk to watch is financial stability in coming years. Thank you. Hi, Michael. We're going straight to Q&A. I guess my first question is, is why do you think the Fed decided to go with this more aggressive monetary policy with regards to making this 2% uh, or limiting the ability of monetary policy to raise rates before removing the punch bowl? Why not? Um, why, don't, why do they want to lose that flexibility? 
Well, they're very concerned about the fact that they have under undershooting. They have been undershooting this two percent target for many, many years now. And the the reason that's a concern is if they undershoot, then people's inflation expectations decline as well. People won't expect them to the inflation to be going up two percent. They'll expect it to be going up somewhat lower. And that makes it harder, even harder for them to meet the two percent target. So they can get into a downward downward spiral. And with the general level of interest rates being lower, as I mentioned, this just accentuates the problem. So there, there are a couple of different things that monetary policy does. One is, is obviously sets inflationary expectations, um, but it also has a substantial influence, it appears, on asset prices. Uh, in the, when you were on the show last time, you mentioned that the Fed was going to do unorthodox asset purchases. It was going to buy both a lot of assets and it was going to buy different sorts of assets than it historically did. And almost immediately after this sort of Fed announcement, uh, the, the asset prices started to increase and then went right back to uh, all-time highs. Do you think, in retrospect, that made sense to do? Um, have we gone too far? And, you know, we can't have the Fed always push asset prices to new highs. Your, your thoughts on that? Well, there are two, uh, two different things here. One, when they said that they were going to start purchasing corporate bonds, at that point, the bond market stabilized and bond prices improved. Uh, so they didn't really have to do much. Just the fact that they said they were going to do that had an impact on the bond market, interestingly. The other is side... That, is that they, also true about the muni market as well? I, I know they said they were going to buy munis. Did they actually buy anything? Well, they bought uh, Illinois bonds. <laughs> <laughs> no one else I, would. I sold them mine, by the way. Okay. Uh, <laughs> But uh, on the, in terms of the equity markets, um, obviously the fact that the Fed is there and has been buying long-term uh, bonds uh, and keeping interest rates low and longer appears to have an impact on the equity markets. Uh, I'm not an expert on the equity markets, but I certainly think that there's a, some relationship there. You know, you talked about forecasts at the beginning, and you mentioned that the two most important things are the timing of a widely distributed vaccine and whether or not there's a stimulus package. Um, if those end up being at a different period of time, does it really matter? I mean, it sounds like the FOMC is on hold indefinitely for years. So whether it comes, you know, in the first half or the second half of next year or even earlier, or there is a stimulus or not a stimulus, it, what, how does it matter in terms of FOMC policy? Well, it may not affect FOMC policy, but it certainly will affect the outlook for the economy. Yeah. So if, it, if you're de delayed a year, uh, hopefully this won't happen, but if you're delayed a year on the development of a vaccine, um, then that clearly would affect the economic outlook. Uh, it, they're at the zero bound already on short-term rates. Uh, they may have to do more at the long end, you know, buy more bonds at the long end. Um, and that's possible that they would have to do that. But it, I think it would depend on how uh, really on the outlook for the economy as they see at that point. It's funny you use the word zero bound. This is uh, a concept that I used to believe in fervently. Uh, but when the Europeans decided to go with negative interest rates, for example, um, I got, you know, I'm reevaluating those concerns. Why did the United States or 
why has the U.S. Fed um, not pursued ideas like the ECB in terms of allowing or encouraging or demanding uh, negative interest rates? Yeah, the other central banks have uh, experimented with negative interest rates. Uh, the record is not very good, and mm-hmm. the Fed has studied this very carefully. Uh, so they're, reluct- they're very reluctant to go down that road of negative interest rates. It causes, um, it, short term, it causes problems for banks, mm-hmm. uh, commercial banks, and it just uh, it doesn't seem to be having that much of a positive impact on a longer term basis. So the countries, or the, I should say, the central banks that have moved to negative interest rates are certainly not moving aggressively in that direction now. In my opening remarks, I made some comments about um, the U.S. labor market. Um, what thoughts do you have on how we're doing? What, what surprises you when you looked at that last, last release on Friday? Um, just any of your thoughts on the labor market? Yeah, I think, uh, well, let me put it this way. When I was last on the program, I forecasted that we would have a 9%, we would not have a 9% unemployment rate until the end of 2021. In other words, the unemployment rate would be much higher than it is today. So already it's 7.9%. Yeah, so pretty good. Obviously, I'm pleasantly surprised that I was wrong uh, when I was last on the program. Uh, so I think we had, we've made good progress in the labor market. We still have many, many American uh, men and women who would like to be employed, but they're not uh, yet employed. And it's just going to be, uh, it's going to take time. Uh, we've never had a situation before where we've actually shut down the economy for health reasons uh, for a couple of months and uh, saw business just dry up across the board and people lose jobs uh, across the board. So it's going to take time uh, to come back. I think we, I think I'm confident we will come back. Um, I just hope it uh, moves quickly. You know, when I think about um, returns on employment, um, I think of two different frameworks. There are, I'll call it existing firms that rehire previous workers, um, but then there are firms that went bust and won't be able to rehire any of their previous workers, and those workers will have to find new employment either with existing firms or new firms that have to be generated from scratch. And it's that second group that most concerned me because um, there are frictions associated with starting new firms and finding new workers. Have you thought about the, that part of the problem as being um, deeply problematic? I've thought about it. Um, it. One thing to keep in mind, when you get these employment statistics every month and we see the unemployment rate 7.9%, that's a snapshot of the labor market at a given moment of time. There are a lot of people moving into the labor market, labor force, and people moving out. A lot of people moving into employment and people moving out. Uh, Obviously, now more people are moving in uh, than uh, into employment than moving out. So it's a snapshot of a point in time. And we're in a very dynamic economy. Even in this period where we're recovering from the pandemic, you'd be very surprised at how many new firms are starting in this people in this period, and existing firms hiring more people too. We hear about we hear. Are you surprised at the number of job leavers this month? I'm sorry. Say that again. 
Were you surprised by the number of job leavers, um, people quitting their jobs to go look for new jobs? I thought that's a positive sign. Yeah, for sure. Um, Risk-taking. You mentioned Rosengren's at Boston Fed worried about too much risky projects in real estate. Um, how can we monitor to see where we're seeing too many risky projects in, in a, a source of, for financial instability? Yeah, commercial real estate is, is, is focused, not residential real estate. Residential okay. real estate has been doing very well, both housing starts and renovations. Uh, Rosengren is an expert on the commercial real estate sector. He's been, he monitors it uh, for years. He's been monitoring it. And in the Fed, Fed puts out a financial stability report every quarter as well. And they'll look at different sectors of the economy and try to identify where they think there are uh, bubbles, uh, possibly uh, bubbling up. Um, and they look at commercial real estate. So they get, uh, the Fed gets an enormous amount of data from published sources, but also informal anecdotal data that uh, the various reserve banks pull together. So, you know, it's not a perfect system, but they, they you know, given what's happened in the Great uh, Recession, the financial crisis, they now look at financial stability much more closely. And commercial real estate is one of the areas that they've identified in recent years before the pandemic. Okay. I'm going to move on now to our next speaker. Um, our next speaker is Matthew Friend. Uh, Matthew is a recent graduate of NYU and is a comedian and impressionist. Uh, Matthew, go ahead. All right. Well, thanks so much, Larry. It's the first time I've ever been called an expert, so I'm feeling pretty great right now. Uh, to begin, uh, I'm a comedian, but more specifically an impressionist. For as long as I can remember, I've loved entertaining and making people laugh. I began doing my first impression when I was four years old. So it was Austin Powers, yes. My parents, for some reason, let me watch it at that age. I was mesmerized by his quirky British persona and loved the feeling of making people laugh when I said phrases like, do I make you randy, baby? Even though I had absolutely no idea what that phrase or any of the phrases coming out of Austin's mouth actually meant. In middle school and high school, I would turn to Google and YouTube to watch old talk shows learn about the most influential comedians, and deepen my understanding of the comedic landscape. I've spent countless hours in my room sitting in front of my computer. But instead of watching cat videos, I scrolled through YouTube digging up Johnny Carson, Don Rickles, Frank Sinatra, and Rich Little clips. So flashing forward, the primary reason I wanted to attend NYU was because of the vibrant entertainment industry that lived within the NYU and New York ecosystem. More specifically, I knew that NYU was a city school, and in the city were comedy clubs. So being in New York during college allowed me to get a head start on my comedy career. After starting out at an open mic at Greenwich Village Comedy Club near, near Washington Square Park with four drunks who suddenly woke up after hearing my Obama and Paul Giamatti and Donald Trump impression, yes, we can, everybody, come on. I began performing on an almost nightly basis at clubs throughout New York City, such as Gotham Comedy Club and Caroline's on Broadway. I was starting to make real progress at these clubs. In fact, one of the producers for Saturday Night Live's Keenan Thompson's uh, talent competition discovered me while I was performing at Gotham, and that turned out to be one of the most important events in my career. So flash forward to my second semester of senior year just earlier this year. I'm performing up until the very end when clubs started to close due to COVID. Like many of you, I head back home, in my case, to Chicago. It's been a few days without performing, 
And I remember I'm sitting on the couch staring at the TV and I'm thinking, something needs to be done. When you were younger, you would create videos in this very spot. So like virtually every single industry in this pandemic, from restaurants to sports to teaching, I thought to myself, how can I pivot? That's precisely when I had this idea to begin a mini late night style talk show from my home called Quarantine. Since March 21st of 2020, I can't believe it's been this long, what is going on? I've been doing Quarantine, a show that begins with a traditional Tonight Show style monologue and includes sketches ranging from cooking with my mother to Donald Trump reading an essay I wrote in second grade that sounds like it actually could have been one of his speeches. And now to interviews with Bravo celebrities and legendary employees at Saturday Night Live. Along with my friend from NYU, we've created 33 episodes so far on my Instagram at Matterday Night Live. Plug alert! Creating a show like this, though, has been an absolutely terrific outlet for me to write consistently and showcase my impressions and original characters and ideas. But I want to get at the future of comedy, and my next creative outlet during this time might help to answer this question. The primary way I've pivoted as a comedian has been through the creation of bite-sized content on the social media app TikTok. TikTok has been absolutely extraordinary. These videos are very quick pieces of content that garner more attention than anything I've ever created in my life. I began posting consistently at the start of the pandemic and now have close to 120,000 followers. Some of the videos I've been posting receive millions of views. The opportunities that this app has created for me are extremely exciting. Just over two months ago, I received a message from the executive producer of the Today Show. Turns out her son found me on TikTok and then passed me along to his mom. A month later, I made my national television debut and had a six-minute spot with Hoda and Jenna on NBC, where I was surprised by a visit from one of my favorite comedians, Sebastian Maniscalco. My new manager and voiceover agents arose and discovered me on TikTok as well. You know, during my Today Show appearance, Hoda asked me the question, how do, you do comedy, how do you do comedy in quarantine? Like, what are you up to? My instant reply was, well, I post TikTok videos and magically I'm on television. While it was said in a joking manner at the time, this is largely true. I believe that the content being created by young comedians on TikTok is largely indicative of the future of entertainment and comedy. The simple fact is that it's harder than ever to capture viewers' attention. I'm sure Larry knows about this. For anything, I mean, think about it. Even during the Super Bowl last year, you were probably on your phone scrolling through social media or emails. Developing quick content for me has extended beyond TikTok and is it also informing my comedy act as well. Some of the clubs in New York have been putting on Zoom comedy shows during this time. While they're definitely a strange experience, it's been fun to keep in touch with my comedy friends in New York and maintain the stand-up muscle. So before I continue, it's important to note that I am Gen Z, so my comedy is starting to be reflective of that. Bits I design are intentionally faster. I believe that in order to capture the attention of younger audiences, my bits must be efficient. This is why I think it's an effective strategy as a comedian to think about word economy and how every word matters. George Carlin was a perfect example of that. Jerry Seinfeld once described the, example of a, uh, the experience of a comedian as being, quote, martial. He said, quote, it's like you against me and I'm going to win. I don't always win, but I'm coming out there to win because the odds are against it. You know, it's like making people laugh. How's that going to happen? It's a magic act. And then Seinfeld continued to make an analogy between comedy and baseball, where he said, uh, you're trying to eliminate variables, trying to guess what this pitcher is going to throw. If I guess right, my odds of getting a hit go up. If it's only 5 or 10%, I'm taking that. So I really like Jerry's baseball analogy. If we're going to use a baseball analogy for the comedy and content of today, 
every Joker pitch needs to be a fastball. I'm a comedy-obsessed nerd and will always adore comedy clubs. But will my little cousin's generation, who's constantly glued to their iPads, sit in comedy clubs in the year 2040 and listen attentively? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that comedy is a timeless art form that will never go away. We need jokes, and we need comedians to create those jokes. In my case, every impression or joke I develop shares one overarching purpose, to earn me a lot of money. Just kidding! Celebrity impressions and comedy in general <laughs> enable me to look at life through a lens that is completely different from my own. I think that this moment will and is signifying a cultural shift in comedy and entertainment more broadly. Comedians are more empowered than ever before. Comedians are resilient, and I'm excited to see this new future of comedy in a post-pandemic world, which at this rate might be 2025. Thank you guys so much. All right, Matthew. Thank you. Um, we're going straight to Q&A for you. Absolutely. Okay, so you, one of the first things you did as a kid was you watched Johnny Carson, you watched uh, Rich Little, um, and you tried to analyze how they crafted their, uh, did their craft. Um, and now you're saying that what's going to happen is it's going to be faster, it's going to be um, shorter, it's going to be tighter. Um, my dad once said he saw Don Rickles once, and he would always be laughing at like two jokes ago because he's just finally getting them so i'm yep. wondering how could it be faster than that what you know, as you contemplated how fast are the routines going to be how fast are the acts going to be and is it is it does it reflect um the interest of the viewer or it's just you're trying to just improve efficiency yeah i mean i think there's a difference between thinking quickly like don rickles was the perfect he could just make a billion jokes in, in, a, in, a, in a minute and he could, he could just fire off analyzing the audience but there's a difference between uh, thinking quickly and develop, intentionally developing bits that are clear and concise and short. Uh, because when you look at what's happening in television today, like for example, Conan O'Brien, his uh, show format now, I believe it's 30 minutes, whereas he's kind of was one of the first to really think about ways to trim down his show. So the show I'm doing on Instagram right now, Quarantine, it's like eight minutes or something like that. So when I talk about developing bits for stand-up, uh, I think about how can I uh, kind of just be boom, 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 kind of like Robin Williams-esque, uh, you know, quick, speedy, and efficient, because it's really also about like thinking about how to capture a viewer's attention. And even in comedy clubs today, people are on their phones. Uh, so that's why uh, comedy clubs like the Comedy Cellar, for example, uh, one, one thing that they do, which is great, is they actually confiscate phones before you go in. Uh, but I think it's about being quick and efficient in how you present. And so do you think it's the attention span of the audience which is really shortened? Or do you think that, um, if you think about COVID, is it the fact that um, they're at home and they feel like they can get away with more instead of paying as much attention? Well, yeah, what's I mean, going on? I, I, think, uh, I think that we're living in a, in a time that we're all more distracted than ever. Um, I think that the appetite to laugh and comedy is never going to go away. We, we still very much need comedians, as I said earlier. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure about the scientific implications of phone use and how that might affect attention. I'd be interested to hear another speaker maybe address that. Uh, but I think that it is helpful uh, from the performing standpoint to think about how can I maximize my time on stage uh, and not necessarily, because you're not necessarily, you, you want to be quick, efficient, as I said, and, and just kind of keep it tight, if that makes sense. Have you thought about um, the distinction between, like, jokes and funny stories? 
Because if you, yeah. if you go with just forgetting, uh, thinking about jokes, you just, yeah. it, oftentimes, like Seinfeld has set up a story situation. Like the whole show is basically a story of some kind. And you build up and you build up to, you know, to get the laughs. Um, is, does this suggest the demise of the storytelling aspect of comedy, or is it going to just change it? No, I mean, I, I think that, that there will always also be an appetite for storytelling. I think on my end, I mean, I'm a comedian, but more specifically an impressionist. So I like to kind of uh, take my bits and make them fast and kind of make you not even know what happened before you go on to the next bit. I think that there is still very much an appetite for that. But that being said, I think it's getting increasingly more difficult to retain viewers' attentions with longer format stories. And that's why you see a platform like Quibi, for example, arising, or that's why you see the rise of, TikTok, where there's content that is so quick and so fast. I know a lot of comedians, and I've done this before as well on TikTok, where I post 20 or 30 seconds of one of my stand-up clips, and then that's what starts to blow up. So I think what we're finding in this younger generation, which I'm a part of, is a desire that is dramatically increasing to get your content, regardless of what it is, whether it's comedy or news, um, whatever it is, in a very quick and efficient way. So I'd be really interested to see how this affects comedy. Are you aware of when you develop your material for different platforms, maybe one is geared more, a platform is geared for older people. Do you find older Uh people's viewing of you as being different? Are you able to ascertain that in any way? What do you, do you hear anything different from people who aren't Generation (laughs) C to your S? It's a great question. I mean, like on my end, I'm able to do different impressions for different audiences. So I remember I did a show uh, in New York uh, at at this comedy club and there was a, a much older audience uh, there. And I basically, I basically went into a Johnny Carson for about 45 minutes. And then they loved it. They ate it up. But then when I'm with a younger audience, I might do some other uh, more uh, relevant impressions like Rami Malek or Timothy Chalamet or younger actors. Uh, but in terms of not being an impressionist and a comedian, I think that, yes, uh, it depends on where you're performing. And that's why it's great to have experience performing at clubs all over the city and, and throughout the country, if you can, and performing as much as you can, because an audience is an audience. So you kind of just kind of tr- try to figure out the rhythm of it. And who, who do you mostly impersonate? Is it the president or is it somebody else? Well, Larry, it's a great question. And I'll tell you what, I know this is supposed to be a neutral show, but what I can tell you is that he's given me a lot of gold, a lot of gold. And there's a lot of people that are listening and they might shut it off. They're so disgusted that I'm going to use this voice. But He's someone that I do. I do him. I do a lot of actors, a lot of comedians, a lot of people. And it's a lot of fun, Larry. It's great stuff. Now, I do politicians. Uh, I like to do them all. Uh, if you want Obama, I can do him, too. We can keep it bipartisan. We can go back and forth, baby. Come on now. But uh, politicians, actors, I keep it really relevant. You know, uh, like when Rich Little was doing his thing, he was impersonating the, the celebrities of his day. So I look at uh, the big stars of today, and I try to speak exactly like them if I can. And it, what part of uh, comedy is impressionism? Is it is it a material wing? When you when you have hundred comics, how many are impressionists? Is it yeah, I mean, material? That's, that's uh, I would say that when I'm at a, I'm, I'm typically the only at, at the comedy shows I've been doing. There might be another person who is doing a, a, the occasional impression, but it's definitely been helpful for me in terms of being able to stand out uh, when I'm performing uh, because of the amount of impressions that I'm doing. And it's, it's largely been consuming my, my whole act. And it's funny, I mean, uh, how the act has evolved as, as I, since I first started doing stand-up. Like when I first began performing, I had this act called the Subway Auditions where I 
basically had a bunch of celebrities auditioning to be the voice of the New York City subway system. So I would have like Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti would come out and be like, oh, stare very clear of the closing doors, please. Thank you very much. And then like Ray Romano would be like, all right, you got to steer clear of the closing doors. I'm feeling pretty great. And then Ted Cruz would be like, you know, you have to steer very clear of the closing doors because my weaselly voice will make you very, very angry if you don't. So, you know, it's, uh, I, it's developed into more of an act where I have celebrities interacting with each other on stage and I, I really write more around it. Uh, but it, it, it's, fun, it was, it's definitely a, a way to stand out. I would say there are not a lot of impressionists these days. Perfect. Okay, Matthew, thank you very much. All right, the show is going to completely take a different tack. Uh, we're now leaving comedy and heading for policing and police unions. Our first speaker is Julius Givens. Uh, Julius recently resigned from a Chicago, his local Chicago police union. Uh, he is a Chicago police officer. Julius, why don't you start this segment for us? Hi, everyone. My name is Julius Givens. While I don't speak on behalf of the Chicago Police Department, I am excited to share with you a few observations with regards to police unions in the United States. First, police unions began to surface in mass in the United States during the 1950s and 60s. And like most unions, police unions exist to serve the interests of their members, police officers. Similarly, police unions negotiate wages, health care, working conditions, etc. However, the principal difference between other union contracts with their employers versus union uh, versus police union contracts are that police contracts also serve to lay rules and regulations for police officers' use of force and even deadly force, and rightfully so. For example, if a teacher in front of her classroom kneeled on the neck of an already restrained student who later died, that teacher would be relieved of her duties without question and justly arrested. Now, if a police officer did the same thing and it was captured on video, that police officer might be allowed a host of reasons for his use of force before being relieved of his duties or arrested. That separates police unions from other labor unions. Since the 1950s and 60s and due to a rise in violent crime, police unions were successful in negotiating extensive protections for their members under the pretense that police officers are the divide that separates the bad guys from law-abiding citizens. This further compounded as the federal government used police departments across the United States to fight the war on drugs and provided financial resources to do so. Over time, these contracts between police unions and their employers only grew stronger by adding more protections for the police officer. That said, I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight the need for police officers to be legally protected from unwarranted and frivolous allegations. This, given the nature of our work and the diversity of our interactions with citizens, are all too common. This is why the use of body-worn cameras and thorough and unbiased investigations are paramount. They may be able to prove or deny malicious intent or behavior. Second, one common theme in this moment is that police unions protect bad cops. For clarity on why the general public may believe this, first is that it may be true via a police union media campaign defending an officer if that officer's behavior garnered national attention. Second, the police union doesn't protect a bad cop 
as much as the contract negotiated on his behalf by his union and agreed upon by his employer does protect him. One of the major pieces of negotiations for police union contracts is the disciplinary process for which officers must adhere to. For example, these contracts can mandate the destruction of an officer's disciplinary history and can even put limits and constraints around the internal investigation process, therefore making it difficult to ensure accountability. Third, police unions are often the most powerful labor organizations within any given city, especially large urban cities, and account for significant portions of the local budget. Police union powers come from their members, but more important, from their political investments. For clarity, a common political investment goes like this. Police unions invest, invest financially into a political candidate's election or re-election. That candidate is then indebted to that police union. And when it comes time to cast a vote on a new police contract, that, that debt is often paid in a yes vote for the benefit of the police union. An example of the other side of that coin is what took place in the most recent San Francisco district attorney's race. Police unions across California pooled over $700,000 to campaign against Chasse Bodine, a progressive, former public defender, and board member of the national nonprofit Restore Justice, running for district attorney. Bodine would later go on to win his race, even as he was matched dollar for dollar by the police, police unions alone. An important note I want to share is that while I, am no, while I am no longer a member of my Chicago police union, I am pro-labor union that serve the interests of their members and the public those members are sworn to protect. Those interests must be aligned if we are to move forward under the notion of we the people. Thank you all for your time. Thanks, Julius. Um, we're going to gather all the... Okay. Um... Our next speaker is Professor Will Jones. Um, he's a professor of history at the University of Minnesota. Uh, he will discuss police unions, why they protect bad cops, and what we can do about it. Go ahead, Will. Thank you very much. I want to talk about three ways that police unions protect bad cops. The f and a number of those are ones that Officer Givens referred to. Uh, political activism, endorsements, and rhetoric that frame criticism of police violence as an attack on police. The, you can see this, for example, in the response of Black Lives Matter with the slogan, Blue, Blue Lives Matter, in framing this as a zero-sum game. The second way is legislative lobbying for laws that insulate police from accountability. Some examples of this are law enforcement bill, officers' bills of rights, which exist in 20 states, constrain investigations, limit access to discipline records, and prevent civilian oversight of police. Another example is the, the judicial principle of qualified immunity. The third way that police unions protect bad cops is through the collective bargaining process, in which unions demand due process protections that are far more robust than any other public employee. Uh, for example, police who are charged in abuse can often review evidence before they are interviewed. Interviews are de delayed. Uh, the public is given limited access to investigations and discipline records 
and as has been mentioned, discipline records are, can be erased over a period of time. Several studies have shown a pretty clear relationship between the rise of police unions and the rise in violence and, and abuse by police. Uh, for example, one study showed that when sheriffs in Florida were given collective bargaining rights, there was roughly a 40% increase in incidents of violence. So what can we do about this? I think there are a number of things that are less likely to happen given the political context, um, and I'll discuss them, and then I'll turn to a few things that I think are more possible. What's less likely is um, the, uh, the possibility of preventing police from forming unions or joining unions, or even really significantly limiting the political voice of police unions. Uh, police officers are protected like the rest of us by the First Amendment and uh, the right to join a union uh, and to speak politically um, is generally seen as covered by those, law, by those uh, provisions. What's a little bit more possible, but I think still not very likely, are changing state laws that give uh, legal protections to police officers, like police officers' bills of rights or the, the, the uh, principle of qualified immunity. Um, it's very hard, I think, given the composition of most state legislatures to envision a moment in which we would seriously roll, black, roll back police officers' bills of rights. Um, they're often rooted in the belief that Officer Givens mentioned of the need for police and the legitimacy of police violence. Um, so there may be political support for reform uh, in certain cities, but translating that into a state uh, change in state law is often uh, not likely again. Um, we saw this actually recently in the, the House of Representatives at the federal level introduced uh, changes both to these bills of rights and to qualified immunity, uh, but to see that those changes blocked in the Senate. So that leaves us with collective bargaining, where I think there's actually some room for change. Um, typically, collective bargaining is also defined by state law um, and subject to intervention by local officials. Uh, most recently, we've seen actually in the city of Washington, D.C., uh, has actually prohibited collective bargaining over discipline policy. Um, this is a provision that has been subject to a lawsuit. The police union is arguing that this is violating the police officer's 14th Amendment rights and treating police officers different from public officials. We'll see where that goes, but even if it survives, uh, we need to keep in mind that Washington, D.C. is an exception and that it's really the only city that is not part of a state. So the city council is able to determine its collective bargaining policy. In any other place, um, city officials would have to answer to state law. I think a more feasible set of reforms can be seen in some sets of reforms that have been proposed recently in California uh, that have a much more surgical focus. Um, for example, rather than prohibiting bargaining over all discipline, um, one proposal is to prohibit bargaining over discipline related to the use of force. Uh, the, the argument is that the, use of, the, the stakes are higher in the use of force and that police should therefore be set, um, held to higher standards. Other policy, proposals that have been 
um, are on the table in California are increasing public oversight, both over the contract negotiation process and the discipline process the, um, and procedures uh, and the records, so ensuring that records are available to the public. Um, another proposal would be to give voice to caucuses within unions, many of which represent African-American or Latino officers who are actually shut out of these negotiations by the exclusive representation principle that governs most collective bargaining. So giving them some role in the bargaining process might be one reform. There's a number of other proposals um, that run short of changing the law uh, that involve the direct public increased public involvement in the bargaining process. And Campaign Zero, the ACLU, um, have emphasized these possibilities. I think it's ultimately important to think of collective bargaining as a political process. And the problem of police violence and abuse is also a political problem. Uh, the solution is a political one in which people need to know more about how the policies are made and enacted and get involved to ensure that those policies serve the public interest. Thank you. Thanks, Will. Okay, our next speaker is Kate Levine. Uh, Kate is an associate professor of law at the Cardozo Law School at, the, at Yeshiva University. Um, she's going to talk about how we prosecute police. Kate, you're up. Thanks, Larry. Uh, so here's my proposition. If you're worried about police brutality and about mass incarceration, stop advocating for more prosecutions of the police and focus on reducing our reliance on policing. So highly publicized killings by police, like that of Eric Garner and Breonna Taylor, have led to outrage when the officers involved don't get charged. One of the things that's most often noted is that police get treated way better by our criminal legal system than anyone else. This is true for numerous reasons. First of all, thanks to the Law Enforcement Officers' Bills of Rights, union lobbying, and collective bargaining agreements, police get treated better during investigation. They often have the right to have a lawyer, a positive right to a lawyer, right to sleep, to eat, to take bathroom breaks. They can't be threatened. They can't be induced to confession by promises of leniency. They can't be lied to. These tactics are not only allowed on civilians, but are part and parcel of the interrogation playbook. Police officers are treated better by prosecutors who rely on policing income election time and on police every day to make all their other cases. When it comes to the police, prosecutors take a long time to charge. They present exculpatory information to grand juries and they only charge police with crimes they believe they committed. With ordinary citizens, they charge immediately. They present only evidence of guilt to grand juries, and they charge with every conceivable crime, of which there are many, with the hopes that they can bargain down the charge to the charge they actually believe the person deserves. And police are treated better by judges and juries, who assume police are telling the truth, despite the fact that they lie often enough that there's a term coined just for them. It's called testilying. On the other hand, civilian defendants are assumed to be lying, assumed to be doing whatever they can to stay out of prison. Even civilian witnesses are treated with more skepticism than police officers who are on trial. The reaction to these realities is for most to say, let's treat the police as harshly as we treat our ordinary citizens. Take away these advantages and throw them in prison just as we do to everyone else. Interrogate them as harshly, bring charges immediately, stack those charges up and negotiate later, disbelieve their self-defense claims. But I want to argue that this is the exact wrong response if you're worried about our over-reliance on prison and our scourge of police brutality. Instead, you should want to give other suspects and defendants all these rights. Don't let the police coerce confessions out of people like they did with the Central Park Five by telling kids they can go home to their mothers by interrogating them for hours and not letting them take a break. 
You want prosecutors to take self-defense claims seriously. Not doing that is what ends up with folks like Santonia Brown, a 16-year-old who killed an abusive man to whom she was being involuntarily prostituted, sentenced to decades in prison. Okay, but what about police brutality? How do we stop that? In my opinion, police brutality is a systemic problem, not primarily one of bad apples. Policing's history will tell you that. It was born in the South out of slave patrols, as an organization has always had a mission of controlling and dominating poor people of color. Police are trained, sometimes rightly, to be scared to believe that, ever, that many people out there are lying in wait to harm them. And this is so despite, you know, the, the fact that things have gotten a lot safer in recent past. So if you put police in situations where they may be scared, even when it's a young black child playing with a toy gun, or if you allow them to bash down a door in the middle of the night, you're going to end up with dead civilians. The only way to reduce police violence is to reduce our reliance on police, period. And the only way to do that is to break our addiction to the criminal legal system as our society's answer to every social problem. People say there's no justice for Brianna, and I agree. But is incarcerating the police who killed her justice for her? I think more justice is to do what Louisville did. Ban no-knock warrants. Stop allowing the cops to go on drug hunts in the middle of the night. If you want to save someone like Eric Garner, who was choked for selling loose cigarettes, get rid of laws that make it illegal to sell loose cigarettes. Take power away from the criminal legal system, and you take these situations away from the police. If you want to see fewer people in prison and fewer people getting killed, stop advocating for prosecution and start advocating for reduction of our prison-backed criminal legal system. Start investing in alternatives to policing, like sending trained medical professionals to help mentally ill people, like teaching people to resolve disputes among themselves rather than calling the cops when mad at their neighbors, and divest from the police to reinvest in education, childcare, welfare, etc. Even if you don't want the government spending more money, they can spend that same money on things that are proven to uplift and create public safety, rather than a system that's designed to perpetuate itself, create more violence, and maintain an us-versus-them fiction that allows police to act with impunity and then be treated like heroes. We need to break our addiction to the criminal legal system. When we focus on treating police as badly as we treat everyone else, we're feeding the beast rather than giving it the starvation diet it needs. Thanks. Oh, that was excellent. Thank you, Kate. Our next speaker is Ben Levin. Ben is an associate professor of law at Colorado Law at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, he's going to talk about what's wrong with police unions and how to protect uh, public sector unions in general. Bye. Go ahead, Ben. Great. Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks, Larry, and thanks, Rick, as well, um, and thanks to all of you for listening in. So in my time, I'm going to make three claims about police unions. First, the police unions are actually less unusual than they might appear. They're a lot like other public sector unions and even like some private sector ones. Second, that police unions aren't the problem. Policing is. And third, that for people concerned about race and police violence, but who are also concerned about worker power and broader structural inequality, the focus on police unions might be misguided and might backfire significantly. First, are police unions really different from other unions? Commentators on the left, broadly conceived, who otherwise are pro-union, tend to be very critical of police unions. Critiques of police unions tend to take two forms. First, that police unions are bad because they're obstructionists. They put the interests of their members ahead of the interests of the public and the interests of the communities that they police. They defend cops who commit violence, and they advocate for procedures, such as the ones that Kate just mentioned, that make it harder for the public to hold police accountable. The other kind of brand of these critiques um, is that police unions have reactionary politics. 
police unions have endorsed conservative politicians. They've made public statements hostile to racial justice and a host of progressive causes. Um, think, for example, here of the fraternity, uh, the Fraternal Order of Police's endorsement of President Trump, um, which led to calls to abolish the FOP altogether. Now, these critiques strike me as fair on their own terms, but they also cut much more broadly than they initially appear and actually sound more like critiques of public sector unions more generally. Why is that? Commentators generally agree that unions serve two core functions, both a monopoly function and a voice function. Put differently, they advance the interests of their members at the cost of others, um, employers and other workers. This is the monopoly function. And they serve as a collective political voice for their members the voice function. In other words, what commentators have identified as the problem with police unions is that they've actually been very good at serving these two core union functions. Which brings us to my second point. The real problem of policing, and particularly of racialized policing, is a problem of policing. Police unions are only a problem by extension um, and as a manifestation of police power and the politics of police. In a recent article that I believe Larry shared, uh, What's Wrong with Police Unions, I made the case that police unions are in many ways indistinguishable from other public sector unions, particularly teachers' unions. A frequent response I got from folks who weren't convinced was something like this. Teachers can't show up to work and kill their students, and teachers' unions aren't protecting people using lethal force. Maybe that's fair, but it's not the union that grants police access to guns and military equipment. It's not the unions that have announced constitutional rules that authorize police to stop civilians and use lethal force against them. And it's not unions who have concluded that police officers should be the catch-all agents of the state, tasked with everything from investigating crime to responding to medical emergencies. To the extent it's a problem that armed police officers serve all of those functions um, and in many ways serve as agents of social control, and to be clear, I think it is, those are problems that should fall on our courts, on our elected officials, and maybe more broadly on us as a society. Which gets us to the third point. Framing the problem of policing and the problem of violence against marginalized communities as a problem of unions is, to my mind, a red herring, at least in part. And arguing that police unions should be abolished or that removing officers' organizing rights, as many of my friends and colleagues on the left have, I think is a mistake. If the problem with police unions are the functions of policing, the violence, the use of criminal law to respond to all social problems, as Kate just mentioned, and the harsh management of the poor, people of color, and of marginalized communities, let's talk about those functions. And indeed, that's what a big part of the that's a big part of what activists this summer have been doing, and it's been a big piece of critical conversations about policing for decades. By focusing on the unions, though, commentators on the left play into a set of long-standing anti-union arguments that have proliferated on the right and have served as the backbone for the assault on public sector unionism. If only we could do away with unions, some of these critics seem to suggest, then the state and society could reform policing. Those arguments should raise concerns for two reasons. First, as I suggested at the outset, they cut much more broadly than police unions and would suggest that public sector unions should be abolished across the board. Uh, think of similar arguments that, that, have, uh, that have been raised in the context of teachers' unions, where claims about school reform have been framed in terms of unions as obstructionist and getting in the way. And second, and I think maybe even more importantly, they let politicians off the hook. Unions don't get to write their own contracts and sign off on them. 
for decades, politicians have essentially been rubber stamping the worst abuses of policing. Blaming unions allows politicians to pass the buck. We vote for our elected officials to represent our interests. It's their job, not the job of union leaders, to serve the public interest. So we should hold them to that duty. Thanks, and I look forward to the conversation. Thanks, Ben. Okay, uh, now we get to hear from someone who uh, represents uh, police unions. That's Rob Harris, director of the Los Angeles Police Protective League. Rob, please go ahead. Thanks. Yeah, today um, I'm speaking on behalf of the Los Angeles Police Protective League and the 10,000 police officers that we represent. Um, And what I've been hearing lately and over the last several months, months, obviously, is a national dialogue that is focused on trying to enact laws and policies to prevent the back end of tragic and, in many instances, horrific police encounters. Things like uh, banning chokeholds, ending qualified immunity, uh, stripping away due process rights of officers in order to fire them more quickly, banning equipment, um, and here in California, the introduction of legislative bills with legal standards that are superhuman. Um, This is not the most productive approach to improve policing and community outcomes, right? There are really two tracks that can be taken when it comes to reform. A punitive one, focused on what happens after an incident occurs, or a more preventative one. Uh, One preventative measure is to ensure a focus on the very front end by determining what type of individual the department is looking for to enter a police academy. And what are those minimum qualifications to become an officer? Um, We know that there are studies that have validated that the more educated an officer is, no matter what that discipline is, that those officers will have fewer complaints, fewer uses of force. uh, And when there is actually a use of force, it's less severe. We know that the more quality training an officer receives throughout their career, the better equipped they are uh, at being able to manage dangerous situations safely for themselves and for those they encounter. My police union uh, is pushing Los Angeles in that direction. We have for a number of years now. Uh, If you want to talk about fairness in police officer oversight or accountability, the LAPD is actually run by five civilians. Uh, Most people don't even know that. About five civilians are appointed to the Board of Police Commissioners by the mayor. Uh, The mayor sets their terms, and those five civilians set the policy for the department. They hire and fire the chief. They rule on all categorical uses of force, um, and they even provide strong accountability and oversight of the department with their own inspector general's office. Um, Our department discipline uh, actually mirrors many other non-law enforcement union-style discipline processes, uh, which provides for fairness, due process, and an appeals process. It's called the Board of Rights. Uh, Board of Rights is a panel that is composed of two command officers and a civilian. Uh, Several years ago, we actually felt uh, that it was unfair to have two command officers whose careers are dependent on the chief to be put in a position at a Board of Rights panel to vote against the chief on a disciplinary recommendation. Uh, We felt like it created a conflict that undermined the fairness of the process. Uh, So we actually proposed, and the voters of Los Angeles passed Measure C, uh, which now allows for an all-civilian Board of Rights panel to ensure that fairness and impartiality. Uh, When it comes to uh, unions and accountability, transparency, and discipline, you know, the law mandates that a union has a fiduciary and a legal responsibility to provide representation for its membership through the administrative disciplinary process. Uh, For criminal matters outside that administrative process, um, our union offers a legal insurance plan uh, that officers can voluntarily sign up for 
and pay into. Uh, much like the long-term disability or life insurance programs uh, our union offers to its members or other unions offer to their members. Uh, so when a member wants to make a claim for legal defense, uh, their case has to be heard by the legal committee, which is composed of union members uh, and is advised by attorneys. That committee actually determines whether or not the actions were within the course and scope of duty, and if the claim itself is even covered by the plan. Again, very similar to other insurance plans that are out there. Um, the title of this podcast or this episode is What Happens Next? So what, what needs to happen next is actually an investment in policing. Uh, the Los Angeles Police Protective League, my union, uh, and several other coalition partners have actually launched investinpolicing.com. And we are working very hard to make sure that this moment in time is not squandered. But look, if all that's wanted is more of the same, then we need to continue with the same academics, the same consultants, former chiefs, activists, politicians, sitting around trying to create a new policing model. But if we're actually serious about improving police and community outcomes, then rank and file unions like ours must be at that table to provide that missing perspective of the police officer, him or herself, the one that is actually doing the patrol, actually pushing a patrol car, so that the professionalizing of our profession can be done right. Um, that's why the Los Angeles Police Protective League and our coalition partners uh, have actually launched a national reform plan that can be seen at investinpolicing.com that starts with things like rethinking which non-emergency calls don't require a police response, creating a national use of force standard that emphasizes reverence for life, de-escalation, a duty to intercede, and strong accountability provisions, which is what the LAPD's use of force policy already has, increasing funding for de-escalation and crisis intervention training, dispatching specially trained officers and mental health experts to manage crisis calls, implementing a national database of former police officers fired for gross misconduct that actually prevents other agencies from hiring them, and implementing nationally an early warning system like LAPD has that helps to identify police officers that need some additional training or mentoring on the front end before something negative happens on the back end. Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Rob. That was Go ahead, Rick. Rob, that was, Rob that, was, that was fabulous. So we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But before we do, let me go back to, to right. Julius Givens. Uh, Julius, you mentioned earlier that you resigned from the Chicago uh, Police Union. So evidently, you believe that the union was not serving your interest, uh, even though you are a sh Chicago police officer. Could you please explain why you arrived at that conclusion and how? Yeah, sure. Who am I taking this question from? This, this is Rick. This is Rick Manx. Okay. Awesome, Rick. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, first, I'll, uh, I want to mention I thought Rob Harris was excellent. I haven't heard that point of view from any uh, one of uh, uh, his caliber or his profession from a union perspective uh, ever, um, and I really appreciated that. But um, specifically, uh, uh, I'll say why I left my, my union. Um, you know, I focus at work specifically on guns and violent crime. In my opinion, nothing destroys a uh, family faster than a speeding bullet, and nothing destroys a uh, community than, this, than the destruction of a family and the destruction of families. And um, I don't want to be cr too critical of my uh, my former uh, uh, union because I am no longer a member, member, so I want to be fair to those folks. But they did not represent what I believed was the best way to prevent um, um, violent crime or to protect the welfare of the citizens of Chicago. 
uh, simply put, um, the current union boss uh, said some things via media um, on Fox News and some local channels that I thought um, didn't serve the interests of the members, um, but also didn't serve the interests of the general public. You know, and here in Chicago, we're fighting an uphill battle. Um, September was one of our deadly months since the early 90s. And um, we've got to get to the root cause of the problem um, for us to make any significant change, which, in my opinion, um, is poverty um, and racism. And unless we decide to talk about those things, um, any political uh, nonsense as an alternative is, uh, is a distraction. And that's just not who I am, and that's not why I joined uh, my police department. And uh, as a consequence, as I stated in my uh, in my letter, that's that's the reason I left. Okay. And, and, and what was the response to your leaving? Uh, how did that process go? How did other people react to that? Uh, what friction, if at all, have you experienced as a result of that decision? Yeah, sure. You know, I've thousands of people across the country and even and some folks uh, abroad have reached out and, 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 and uh, congratulations and support, et cetera. Um, internally, uh, hundreds of officers have reached out. Um, officers across the country have reached out. Uh, chiefs across the country at different departments, um, federal and local law enforcement, have you know applauded those efforts. Um, you know, when you go against the grain, or better yet, when you uh, uh, jump into the lion's den, you gotta expect uh, to be scratched at the very least. So there were some folks who disagreed. Um, there were some folks who uh, respectfully disagreed. Others disagreed in another fashion. And, um, you know, it's an uphill battle. Um, you know, like, like Rob Harris uh, just mentioned, I, mean, I got to say, he, I mean, they're pretty progressive. I, they don't identify, and I think I'll ask uh, Harris to speak to this later. I, I can't imagine they identify with too many other organizations similar. I'd love to hear his response. But um, there are folks who, 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 um, believe that that old style of policing that we've been doing, that old process um, that we've been doing for the past 20, 30, 40 years is the way uh, we should go moving forward. And I disagree. And um, folks were not very happy with the decision I made. Uh, but again, I joined the police department to serve the interest uh, of, the, of the citizens we serve. I'm, I'm not perfect at that by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but um, I think I have more responsibility to always get better and to accept reality and move in that direction. Okay, so we may want to come back to that later, but let me let me move to, to Rob Harris for a minute. So, Rob, you uh, outlined some proposals that the police unions here in California have have come up with, uh, and we should note that there is a is a website for Invest in Policing. I think it's investinpolicing.com where you have the proposals that you listed, uh, and those involve basically uh, a national use of force of a force standard, a process for decertification of police officers, so that bad cops who are found to have engaged in, in unjustified violent behavior can't get a job anywhere, uh, establishing an early warning system to identify those cops, uh, and then also to have specially trained experts for mental health and other sorts of matters that might not be best uh, addressed by armed police officers. So are those the sorts of reforms that our other uh, panelists, uh, Ben, Kate, and William, that, that you can sign on to and that you think are sufficient to transform policing? Well, th this is Will Will Jones. I mean, I think one of the problems with, um, I mean, all of those are, sound like good ideas. I think the question is, 
um, in the details, so the a national use of force policy. Um, one of the big problems, I think, with a national database is that the problem is actually not um, keeping track of officers, always officers who have been fired. In fact, the problem is, you know, officers who have been repeatedly charged with complaints, um, and they're not fired because they're protected by these um, these provisions that are stronger than most um, in the discipline policy, or they go to arbitration and they get them overturned. And often when uh, complaints are investigated and do not result in firing, then those cases can be removed from uh, the from the record. Um, that's certainly the case here with the case of George Floyd. Several of the officers who were involved in the murder of George Floyd were officers who had repeated complaints, but those are not on their record. And so that wouldn't be addressed by a national database of officers who have been fired. Okay. Ben, what are your thoughts on that? So this is Rob Harris. Can I? Uh, sure. I have right. several points in all the discussions, but um, I'll, I'll address the complaint one first. Um, the Los Angeles Police Protective League has no interest in protecting an officer who has uh, does not have the temperament or the character to be a police officer. Um, having said that, uh, simply having complaints. Uh, in your personnel file in and of themselves do not denote anything. Um, and the reason that I say that is uh, I worked South LA for a long time. Uh, one of our other board members, because there are nine board members on the LA Police Protective League, one of our other board members worked Southeast, uh, a particularly violent part of the city. Uh, and getting personnel complaints was a common tactic and technique of gang members uh, within that division. Uh, because they knew that if you file enough complaints against an officer, eventually the command will will do something to that officer. Um, and in and, and our board member's um, example, he was receiving complaints that he was abducting gang members and dropping them off in rival gang territories on his days off. Um, he had all kinds of complaints that eventually through the investiga investigatory process were found to be unfounded, which means they didn't happen. Um, and yet the, he had enough complaints stacked against him that what the command ultimately did was they removed him from that division and his assignment and sent him somewhere else in the city. So who actually lost uh, in that scenario are the community members within Southeast Division who lost a very dedicated and professional police officer because of the tactics and techniques the gang members did in filing complaints. So simply pointing to somebody and saying, hey, they have a number of complaints uh, doesn't do anything. Uh, what you need to know is how many sustained complaints and of what nature were those complaints um, sustained for. And then you can start really making an informed decision and, and a reasonable conversation can begin to happen about, well, now what do we do with that? So complaints in and of themselves is not a barometer uh, of an officer's integrity or ability to do the job well. Um, I know that there was a question by Julius, and I, and I have to respond to Julius just by saying um, I have the utmost respect uh, for him working in Chicago. Uh, because what that department uh, is having to deal with and face right now um, is not is not an easy task um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I think he made a point about um, you know the Los Angeles Police Protective League being a little bit progressive. Uh, look, being a progressive union uh, starts with exercising some extreme ownership. 
uh, over yourself, over your profession, and where you're trying to go. Um, but it also means that you have to have a, a grasp of the realities of the job. And the reason that we advocate so heavily and the reason that we have had uh, conversations, the Protective League and myself, with Congresswoman Karen Bass on the House side with her bill or Senator Tim Scott on the Senate side is because if we're going to have a real honest conversation about how to professionalize this profession, you cannot exclude the rank and file union from being at that table and sharing the experiences of the things that uh, Julius experiences in Chicago on a day-to-day basis, the complexities of decision-making processes when you have to choose to use force or not, the types of calls that we are being expected to and asked to respond to and handle because it's the path of least resistance by local officials or federal officials to make police officers the frontline responder to the homeless crisis, substance abuse crisis, those suffering mental health crises. So uh, unless you have a rank and file union at that table sharing those perspectives, I fail to see how we will ever come out on the other side uh, with something that is um, in the best interest of officers and the communities that we serve. And Los Angeles um, is a department who has uh, been forged through the fires, right? Any human, any person knows that it's adversity that really shapes who you are. Um, I think most people could say, look to a point in their life where they're like, hey, I, I went through a really hard time, and when I came out on the other side, I was better for it. Well, the LAPD is no different. Um, and now it's our job, it's incumbent upon us uh, to set ourselves up as a standard bearer across the country and talk about where we were and then where we have come to and what can we do to help other agencies rise up to the level uh, that our, our department is at and the professionalism that our officers show uh, because there are real tangible results to what we have accomplished. Um, I mean, if you want to look at them I mean, specifically, you want to talk about force, uh, LAPD is at a 30-year low when it comes to officer-involved shootings, right? We, we have had a 45% decrease in the number of officer-involved shootings over the last five years. Um, we had 1.6 million interactions with LA residents in 2019. That's radio calls, uh, that's proactive observational stops by officers or emergency calls. Out of that 1.6 million interactions in Los Angeles, we had 53 uses of force where a suspect was significantly injured. Out of that 53, okay. only 26 officer-involved shootings. So we have produce real results with this reform plan, and I, I, I'm hopeful that people will begin to help us advocate for it. Okay, Rob, this is great to hear. Let, let me just go, and there's a lot to talk about here, but, but let me go back to your initial observation that the uh, existence of complaints alone is not sufficient to determine that, that the officer's been misbehaving. Because, you know, there is an interest on the other side, which is that often uh, citizens may complain about racial profiling, for example, especially in a city like Los Angeles. As you know, these have been big issues. And in Los Angeles and elsewhere, those complaints are almost never sustained, right? I mean, it's just hard to prove in any particular instance what happened, even though you might have a mountain of complaints. So uh, I'm just trying to figure out how do you find the balance, right? I mean, you don't want uh, unjustified complaints to tarnish an officer unfairly, but you also don't want the difficulty of proving a complaint and the fact that the complaints are almost never sustained to make that complaint irrelevant uh, when it seems in the aggregate it has to be telling us something. So, so how do you balance those, those two concerns? Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a great question. And that balancing act, I think, is of vital importance. Um, I think I would draw a comparison. Um, I know over my 21-year 
career, it was not uncommon uh, for me to get radio calls and have to investigate complaints against uh, parents and or teachers. I've had a number of, of uh, incidences where I've had to do investigations on teachers because they exercised some, some authority or they did something the student didn't like and the student then uh, went and levied uh, you know, a complaint of, of sexual misconduct against the teacher or something of that nature. Um, and just like uh, the, the union, the rank and file unions are trying to put a process in place that is as fair as possible for their members. Teacher unions are no different. Um, and I don't think that just because uh, a student is unhappy with uh, steps that a teacher took, that the student should be allowed to file frivolous, uh, not, I don't want to say frivolous allegations, but allegations that are then proven to be unsubstantiated. I don't think that that should be held against the teacher. And I know uh, the I know the teachers association in, in here in Los Angeles would would agree for that uh, with that. Um, on the other side, if you want to call balls and strikes, uh, I don't want officers uh, to be employed uh, who have uh, demonstrated and can and can be shown to have done something uh, that's egregious. So you're right, there is there is a um, a balancing act. I think that's why the LAPD model of having the five civilian board board of police commissioners is important. They oversee that. Uh, we also have the office of the inspector generals which is completely separate from the department itself. They do their own investigations of these styles uh, of complaints all in effort to try and make sure that you get the disposition of that complaint right because there there is uh, real consequences uh, to that so yes it is a balancing act and i and i don't know that as humans we will always get it right but we should always be striving for it okay that's great. Will jones i have a question for rob harris um do you think that there's a difference between in the standards for disciplinary pro procedures between um, use of force and other uh, issues of discipline. I mean, you bring the comparison between police officers and teachers, and somebody re earlier mentioned the, the fact that teachers don't generally have the, the authority to use force against their, teacher, their students. Sometimes that happens, but that's gen not generally seen as part of their authority. So do you accept the idea that there might be a different standard for, um, for measurement of discipline procedures or treatment of discipline procedures when use of force is involved? Yeah, but I don't know that that, is, uh, that should be where the conversation ends. I, I think the notion of discipline should be crafted around the particulars of the profession that you're talking about. Look, teachers, and I'm, I can only speak to California, I can't speak across the country, but the, union, the teacher unions here in California are notorious for, for protecting pervert teachers. Uh, and that's without without question. The process that has been put in place that has been advocated and pursued and put in place by teacher unions protects and circles wagons around pervert teachers uh, and moves them around the state and you're not able to get their records. So um, no, it's true that teachers can't use force, but they have as a union set up a process uh, that protects pervert teachers. On the law enforcement side in Los Angeles, we have tried to make a discipline process that is as transparent as it possibly can be without negatively impacting due process rights of any individual. Uh, a, a prime uh, example of that is uh, over the last two years, we have actually established whenever there is an officer-involved shooting, we have a, a critical incident video release policy now where within 45 days, unless there's extenuating circumstances, but generally within 45 days or sooner, uh, our department in conjunction with our five uh, civilian board panel puts an entire video 
presentation out to the public with body-worn camera video, with the audio of the officer's radio transmissions, with the uh, uh, radio uh, or the uh, police dispatcher's audio, any uh, closed-circuit security TV footage, all that we can, we put that out there with a walkthrough step-by-step of what transpired um, so that the public knows where we're going with this. Uh, California has in place um, a, a legislative measure that now makes um, uh, a police officer's personnel records uh, extremely accessible through a Public Records Request Act. Um, and so California is on more of uh, the progressive side when it comes to these things. Um, and the Los Angeles Police Protective League does not want to stand in the way of building that trust with the community or retaining that trust with the community. But we also want to make sure that we get it right. And we want to make sure that we are doing things uh, that are not so, uh, uh, the pendulum has not swung so far over that we're actually undermining our own members' rights. And so, yeah, it, it, is, a, it is a balancing act. Real quick, um, I know you said you guys are kind of the standard bearer, and I'm, I'm learning more about your organization now. Are there Speak other up, Julius. Across... Excuse me? Speak up. I yeah. have trouble hearing you. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, Rob, uh, I know that you noted that you guys are kind of the standard bearer. Um, are there or other organizations, union bosses throughout the country reaching out to you guys saying, hey, can you help us out here? We've seen you've yielded success in this area. How are you doing it? I mean, you don't have to name any names, but is that happening? Uh, yes, uh, that is happening. Um, and uh, just like I think your experience was, Julius, when when you uh, when you left your union, uh, you had people that that called and praised you, supported you, and then you also had you, you know your detractors. Uh, we're, we are no different in that. Yes, we have had unions that have reached out to us and said, hey, how can we bring ourselves up to your standard? Because they're, they're recognizing that, um, that we need to continue to evolve as a profession. But look, we've also, had, we've also made other unions uncomfortable. Um, our coalition partners here in California specifically uh, are the union presidents of San Francisco's Police Officers Association and then San Jose's Police Officers Association. Um, but we also have... Uh, the support of a number of other associations here in California and then across the country. Um, and like you said, I, I won't name them because I don't, I don't, you know, I not without talking to them first. But yes, we've had support for what we're trying to do, but we have also, uh, you know, encountered some pushback from it, which is to be expected. Um, and then uh, we just have some honest, real conversations about what extreme ownership looks like from a union perspective. Julius, it's Larry Bernstein. I have a question for you. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of your talk that there's been a significant uptick in violence in the city of Chicago. Um, for us who don't see it day to day, what, what's going on? Why has there been such a dramatic increase in violence? What motivates it? Who's getting hurt? Why are they hurting each other? Uh, has there been something underlying different on the ground that's causing this violence? And what can or cannot the police do to, to minimize this violence? Yeah, sure. You know, naturally, um, or historically, rather, we've always seen an uptick in violence uh, uh, during the warmer, warmer days. But we, we can't, and I think this is nationally because we're seeing it in New York, we're seeing it in Chicago, we're seeing it across the country. We can't talk about the uptick in violence without talking about what coronavirus um, has done to our economy and to our cities, et cetera. And uh, I think that has a significant role to play. Um, September, as I noted, um, has seen one of the 
uh, more violent months in the city of Chicago uh, since the early 1990s. And I think a lot of that has to do with, again, coronavirus. Um, a lot of folks were indoors, a lot of folks' uncertainty, a lot of jobs um, lost, unfortunately. Um, I'll give you an example. Even downtown Chicago, where we're seeing unprecedented violence in ways we've never seen before, is that we're getting um, a number of folks, and I work downtown Chicago, we're getting a number of folks um, visiting our hotels um, who traditionally might not have visited our hotels um, for a whole host of reasons, but these hotels, doing their best to make all the money back they lost during COVID, have, say, shifted their prices from $250 a night to maybe $60, $70, $80 a night. And they're bringing folks down who are coming to stay at the hotels, and rightfully so, um, but those folks are bringing um, guns and um, uh, drugs, et cetera, with them. And as a, as a consequence, uh, they're shootouts, um, there's, there's, there's much of nonsense that's taking place. And, um, and uh, you know, I think, again, that's a, uh, that is a direct, there's a direct correlation between the COVID-19 crisis and gun violence. Um, the reality is it's the same players that have been always kind of been doing this. Now there's just a significant uptick. And then we also have to mention specifically here in Chicago, our access to guns. Many of the surrounding areas are less uh, strict on guns than we are here in Chicago. So access to weapons, access to firearms, specifically pistols, um, caused an uptick. Uh, there was a gentleman, because I focus on guns and violent crime, there was a gentleman who shot a person five times. I got in a foot pursuit with him. I recovered the weapon. He, uh, he hadn't had a he hadn't had a previous arrest, which was uncommon for most of the folks I encounter from a gun offense, um, but had access to a firearm um, that he likely shouldn't have had access to. And as a consequence, he, um, he did what he did. And, you know, it's an unfortunate reality, but access to pistols in our immediate area here in Chicago is readily available. Wow. Okay, thank you, Judy. This is Rick Banks. Let me let me raise one broad question about policing that kind of cuts across many of the presentations. So many of you all talked about the importance of increased training, right? That 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 cops get too little on the job training, and we need to professionalize, and that's part of professionalizing. And you also talked about the unfortunate fact that we've had many responsibilities fall to law enforcement just by default, uh, dealing with homelessness, dealing with mental health issues. Um, these are not things that cops have ever been trained for, and maybe the solution is to have other uh, entities uh, address those uh, challenges in society. Uh, but, you know, the assumption there, so I want to focus on those two types of reforms and raise the question of, you know, they assume that uh, essentially policing, that there's nothing deeply wrong with policing. It's just that we don't provide enough training and we ask cops to do too much, but that the culture of policing is basically sound. So my question is, do you all believe the culture of policing is basically sound and we just need to make some tweaks in the form of more training, fewer responsibilities, or should we be aiming for a broader cultural change in how police officers themselves think about their role and their identities, their connection to communities? Okay, can you ask that one first? Sure, I can try. Um, so I, I think, as clear from my talk, I, I think it's a cultural problem, um, much more than a, a problem of training and small tweaks. Um, and 
I think, well, so first of all, I, 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 but I actually think some of the things that Rick just mentioned, particularly the don't have police responding to the homelessness crisis, to mental illness, um, and to various other, um, you know, petty related, petty crimes, um, would, would, may do more than just a small tweak because that's a lot of what, uh, police are asked to do right now. Um, I, I'm, I, and I'm a lot more sanguine that we can, split up the focus of police or take these out of the focus of the police, then that we can change uh, the culture of policing when, you know, look, there, there's obviously violence that, that police have to respond to, but there, there's also lots of nonviolent situations that they have to respond to. And, um, and I'm, I'm more comfortable with the idea of taking those situations away from police than I am with uh, believing that they're going to be able to go into situations with a mindset um, of sort of service rather than a mindset of dominance, uh, given the, that they're trained for the most dangerous situations. Anybody else want to take the bait? Uh, is, yeah, I'll, I'll shoot. This is Rob Harris with LAPPL. Um, I, you know, she, she rounded out that sentence with that's because that's what they're trained for. Um, I'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that can give me a, a reasonable uh, answer on how much training they actually think police officers receive. Um, we don't, the, the, the path that we take with law enforcement is a path we don't take with any other profession when it comes to improving uh, the ability to do your job. Uh, we, are, we are a nation that loves our sports. Can you imagine a general manager of a baseball team that says, uh, I think the, the, uh, the play of our, of our team needs to be needs to be better. And so in pursuit of making my team better, I'm going to strip out all of our state-of-the-art uh, workout uh, equipment. I'm going to now not allow any of our players to actually take the field to do practice. It's all going to be roundtable discussions and watch videos. Um, but I'm going to raise the expectations of your play during the game, and if you don't meet that new raised expectation, I'm going to punish you. Uh, you. You would think that that general manager lost his mind, except this is what we we're doing to law enforcement. We're asking, uh, there, are, there are legitimized arguments to defund police departments, to abolish police departments, but the expectation is that they perform at a higher level. How much sense does that make? You cannot do training for a police officer in a classroom or watching a video that will prepare him for the realities of the field. And I know Julius can speak to this, and I'll let him speak to it, but the reaction of a human being to a stress-induced incident, particularly one where you are in fear for your life or the life of another, your body does particular things that you have no control over. And it doesn't matter if it's one of the academics on this call or whether it's a police officer. Your brain will respond in a particular way. Your body will respond to that stress a different way. And the only way to improve that is to put officers through experiences that somehow are able to replicate those stresses so they can learn how to mitigate it or deal with it when the moment arises. Uh, when I was in the military, one of our, our phrases used to be, you never rise to the occasion, you fall to the level of your training. And if we are not willing as a country, uh, as, as uh, communities to invest in our officers and give them the training, the real training that's necessary, I don't know how we continue to hold them to the standard that's being talked about. Larry, can I respond wow. to that? Um, please. 
so I, you know, I actually agree with a lot of what Rob just said, except, you know, I can't speak for Los Angeles, but the New York City Police Department is $6 billion. So, you know, I don't know how much more he wants invested uh, in policing to make it work in the streamlined manner he's, he's discussing. I, I would much rather see some of those responsibilities taken away from the police. I understand, of course, that as a union rep, the job is to keep as much uh, policing work available to the police as possible, but let's use that money more smartly rather than keep on piling money and military equipment into police departments, uh, you know, and then telling everyone else that they don't know what they're talking about. Okay. Uh, okay. It's okay. Any, anyone else on that? Can I jump in on this? It's Ben Levin here. And I, I think I want to, just to, the, to the, the sports analogy we're dealing with, I mean, again, I think part of the problem is it's not that, it's not that people are making demands of the team and then telling the general manager that the general manager doesn't have funding. The issue is um, we have a professional football team that's basically being told to also play hockey, baseball, um, run track and do an assorted number of other things. And I take Kate's point, which is a, you know, a point that's, um, that's getting a lot of traction now is saying, let's talk about and let's talk about carving out some of those other responsibilities, right? Rather than saying, let's pour more money into this. So the same individuals are going to be doing able to do all these things. Because I think part of the issue, um, and, and again, I do, I think this, this goes to the, in some sense, what um, what Rob was saying, but I think one of the challenges is if you're having a conversation about um, about an institution and a set of individuals who are tasked with very difficult jobs, with high stress jobs, with dangerous jobs, there's going to be a huge tension between um, what you are asked to do. And I know this from talking to people in law enforcement, from um, from my own career, from, from, from some things I've seen, right? there's going to be a tension there with all of the different tasks that people are asked to do, which means there's inevitability um, of these really bad outcomes. And, and I think this goes to, to Rick's initial question. I, and to agree with Kate on this, I do think it's one of the reasons why um, sort of scaling back functions potentially has, um, has a broader or more transformative effect because it's going to get away from some of those tensions and putting people in, in what are essentially contradictory situations. Yes, and, and so let's just follow up on that. So, Rob, could you be clear? Are you against the project of taking some roles, uh, so, for example, dealing with homelessness and mental health issues, taking those roles away from armed police officers? I am absolutely not. Um, I, really, I really appreciate uh, yeah, both, both what Ben had, uh, said um, regarding, look, let's look at it, those functions. I think that is the best place to begin. I think putting rank and file at the table to begin talking about those calls that, that police should never have been going to um, in the first place, uh, but we're only doing it because uh, political leaders uh, chose the path of least resistance and then put that on the shoulders of officers. I think that's a great place to start. Uh, when, it, when we talk about funding, um, I know a lot of people look at police budgets uh, as a whole number and go, that's just so much money. Um, and what can we do better with that money? You know, that issue lies at the feet of the politicians who, who approve those budgets and who make uh, irresponsible financial decisions uh, with their total city budgets. What I want to make sure is clear is that if we're going to talk about police budgets, that we're just honest about what are the consequences to cutting budgets? What, is, what are the tangible uh, outcomes of doing that? Here in Los Angeles, our city council did a $150 million budget cut from the LAPD. Uh, they did it uh, for 
uh, reasons of emotionality, uh, not rationality. Uh, they didn't sit with us. They didn't sit with the department and talk about it. They just did it. Um, and now we're finding out that the real impacts of this are the first place we're going uh, to try to save money because we were cut is the recruitment and hiring of officers. Now that impacts the recruitment and hiring of minority officers. That uh, impacts the number of officers that we have on the job who are street ready, ready to go patrol. To patrol. Chief Michael Moore went and told the council a couple weeks ago we're expecting about 350 to 400 officers uh, short next year. Uh, and that's in a city that's already about 3,000 officers light. So nationally, there's already an issue with recruitment and retention. Uh, there just is, um, particularly in our minority communities trying to come onto the job. So when you start cutting money, there really is an impact to that. So you know, if that discussion needs to happen, I, I would hope that it's it's well, more reasonable. Well, this but is Larry Bernstein. One quick yeah, question yeah. for you. Yeah. So um, Forrest Stewart uh, wrote a book about policing in Los Angeles, and he gave an example of the relationship between social services and the police. And his example was there's um, a drunk on a corner and he's pissing against uh, the side of a, of a public building. And the officer pulls up and says, all right, you got two choices. You can, I can take you downtown or I can take you to an AA meeting. You make the decision. And then he calls ahead to the AA office and they meet him at the door. Um, and so he called what Forrest Stewart calls is like, you know, the left hand working with the right hand, police working with social services. Um, how do you think about, because when Kate was describing limiting uh, the type of problems that police can, can work with, we do have small, petty issues uh, that our civil society depends upon, and it isn't the role of the police necessarily how to deal with um, people pissing in, in public places. But to what extent do they work with social services to encourage people who need those social services to get them, whether it be drugs, alcohol, et cetera? Yeah, I'm, I am in totally in support of that. I, I don't know any police officer that comes on, on the job with, with the aspirations to make their community safer and better and, and really looks forward to having to deal with the, the drunk that's pissing on, on the sidewalk. Um, I think Los Angeles does this model very well. Um, uh, I, I can point to what we call our SMART teams, which is uh, a specially trained county psychologist that's paired with a specially trained officer who has received, uh, uh, I think it's 40 hours of training and dealing with individuals that are suffering a mental health crisis, um, and they respond to uh, any calls uh, that has a propensity with someone suffering a mental health crisis. Now, patrol gets there first, um, obviously, just to render the scene safe, make initial contact, but then that specially trained unit arrives in an attempt to have the left hand working with the right hand so that we can find a solution to the, to the situation that, that doesn't necessarily have to go down the law enforcement situation. Uh, we do this very similarly with domestic violence style issues and radio calls. Um, we are doing it with uh, the homeless epidemic in Los Angeles uh, where we partner with uh, county health professionals and we partner with waste management uh, to try and, uh, and, and uh, impact those quality of life issues with the neighborhoods where homeless encampments have, have been set up. Um, so we're trying to do that very well in Los Angeles. And, and again, I, I, my caution to everybody, not just the, the panelists on this call, but everybody in general is I really want to see people refrain from painting everything with a with a broad brush that includes police unions that includes uh, you know segments of society that includes police officers themselves I think we do a better service finding where things are being done well or where things are meeting that uh, that standard that we want and then trying to implement them everywhere else but I, I think Los Angeles could be a good place to start 
Okay, I'll let me, the question for Kate. Let me, you know, let me let me take it back to okay. Kate really quickly. So, the, Kate, I mean, you have a really your your approach is very provocative and counterintuitive, and your, your argument at core is that while we focus on stripping police officers of the protections that they have if they are suspected of a criminal offense, instead what we should do is to give all criminal defendants the protections that police officers enjoy, and that would be really more consistent with many other aims we have for the criminal justice system. So my specific question for you, Kate, is um, what about some of the, the, uh, the, this particular protection that police officers have? In many jurisdictions, police officers uniquely are permitted to essentially review the evidence before they tell you what happened. So they can review, for example, the body camera footage, their own body camera footage, other body camera footage. They can review evidence that's available, and then they make a statement about what's happened. Uh, obviously, uh, that really works to the, the advantage of the police officer. Ordinary citizens don't have the benefit of being able to review all the evidence before they make a statement. Do you believe that ordinary citizens should should that, that everyone should be given the benefit to review all the evidence before they tell you what they what they think happened? Thanks, Rick. Uh, no, uh, I mean, so to, to answer your question specifically, no. I think there are a few okay. uh, advantages that, you know, police have negotiated for that really, I think when they're negotiating for them, they're very focused on the disciplinary um, process. And I think separating disciplinary, you know, from the criminal process is an important thing. Um, but there are a couple of protections that I, I wouldn't extend, and, and that's one of them. And, and the other is okay. this, this waiting period that, um, you know, you, you can't speak to an officer who's involved in, a, in something that, that, that may be disciplinary or, or criminal uh, for, you know, 24 to 48 to seven day, hours to seven days uh, after the incident, um, which has proven to sort of give time to, you know, circle the wagons and, and get the right. same story. And we've, we've seen... Right this happened numerous times. So, so those things, no, I, you know, I kind of left them out, you know, by okay. six minutes, uh, because they aren't, I, I, I don't have any, uh, you know, look, my main goal is to reduce our reliance on the criminal legal system and see fewer people in prison. So if I'm thinking about that, then I want to give criminal defendants every advantage. But if I'm thinking about it just from a purely, like what makes sense, what stops false confessions, what, what, um, you know, stops, what would stop yeah. people who really well, don't me- deserve for a long time from me, going, then, me, then those would, would be, wouldn't be on the list. Okay, so let me, let me, let me just go for a second to your premise, because I'm not sure why that would be a goal to see fewer people in prison, you know, okay. especially if we're, if, if we're talking about violent crimes and people have been, and when we talk about police violence, we're talking about violent crimes and citizens commit violent crimes as well. Um, in those cases, I'm, I'm not clear at all why the goal would be to see fewer people in prison rather than to try to find some balance that maximally furthers public safety. Sure. Okay. So first of all, you know, that's the response that anyone, that, that, that most people, and it makes a lot of sense, will raise when someone says, I want to see fewer people in prison. So the first thing I'll say is, you know, we have to define what you mean by violent crime very carefully. But if what you mean is, you know, people killing each other or violent rapes or things along those lines, right, those aren't really the first places that I would go in terms of decarceration. I would be focusing on people who are in prison for drug crimes, people who are in prison for small property crimes, people who are in prison for, for nonviolent crimes. So, so, you know, that would be my, my first point. And, and my second would be that, you know, I'm not convinced and haven't been convinced that prison does a good job of, uh, of stopping violence, of uh, 
rehabilitating people and making them productive members of society, uh, of deterring other people from committing crimes. Um, so, so I'm, you know, prison is never, prison doesn't, as, as the, as our form of accountability, uh, as a sort of lock, lock someone up in a, in, in, you know, for, for years and years and years in a torture chamber, uh, has never really worked for me, uh, in terms of, uh, a way around violence. And I think there are a lot of people who are not me who are doing very creative things with thinking about alternatives to prison uh, for actually finding accountability, restorative justice, and, and things like that. And I'm not an expert uh, on those things. But, but the other thing I think to say is, is if, first of all, I'm, so I'm not saying like we should give these rights to the people who are doing exactly what the police are being accused of. I'm saying we should give them to everyone. The prosecutor shouldn't be charging the guy who sells a couple of Xanax to an undercover uh, without thinking about it either, right? So I think we could start there, and that's sort of a place of more agreement before we would move on to worrying about the smaller number of people who commit violent, truly violent crimes. Excellent. Thank you. I got a question. I have a question for Julius. Julius, um, we spoke offline earlier about the role of of the union and the police union as it relates to everyday policing. We've spoken a lot today about how they interact in disciplinary actions, but how does the union affect just day-to-day policing? How does it affect uh, the assignments and what goes on there and, and its interaction with police management? Yeah, sure. Um, and I likely won't go into too much detail um, uh, and be as candid um, um, in the conversation that you and I had, uh, because uh, uh, I am still a Chicago police officer, and there's rules and regulations that I have to adhere to. Uh, now that we're, we're speaking publicly, but what I will say is that, um, and, and, and Rob may be able to attest to this, the rank and file uh, of, police, of police officers, and nationally speaking, uh, take their orders uh, and from their police union bosses. Um, you know, while management, police management um, has a say in day-to-day operations, uh, the central culture um, or, uh, you know, the, the, the decision-making um, and how a police officer, what a police officer may or may not do often comes from that police union boss. Uh, we, we saw this in Atlanta um, uh, of the, uh, you know, when all those uh, coppers called in sick. Um, that you know, I don't remember how many exactly, but that uh, uh, that was a decision um, that was made um, and executed by a number of officers. Now, what's at stake when something like that happens is you have less coppers on the street pre- protecting um, the welfare of the citizens that they 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 serve. Um, from a day to day operation perspective, yes. Coppers take orders from their supervisors, um, but if something is not, you know, kosher, um, that immediately goes um, to uh, the police union, and then uh, that police union steps up and intervenes in any capacity. So, Julius, this is Rick Banks. So, so are you sure. suggesting? Is this is? I mean, this is a, a new idea to me that basically the the decisions that are made on a day to day basis about policing they're actually not made by the management as much as they're made by the union. No, I, I'm not suggesting that police management aren't making the day-to-day operational decisions. That, that, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. I am suggesting, however, that the union plays a major role in the, uh, in the culture of 
the day-to-day operations of that police department. And I, I think that Rob Harris could probably uh, attest to that um, or confirm that. But um, management, police management uh, definitely lays down the law. Um, but the culture specifically um, is oftentimes, uh, and nationally speaking, uh, decided by that of that police union. Okay. That's excellent. Let me let me go to one more discrete issue. We're we're nearing the end here. We just have a few more minutes. Uh, is there? Do we have general agreement here, though, to one of the issues that Will raised earlier, possibility um, for reform, which is that bargaining over disciplinary matters related to uh, police violence or other serious police misconduct should not be subject to a collective bargaining agreement. Is that something that everyone's on board with? So, so uh, Ben Levin here. Let me. Let me jump in on this. I mean, so I I I like the move to to split out uh, use of force from other discipline because I, I do think there's a real worry about how um, how broadly discipline cuts. And I've heard a lot of arguments where people will say, um, you know, we should uh, we should allow we should allow police unions to bargain over wages and hours, but not over discipline, which I think wildly understates the ways in which um, you know what unions do in most contexts. And one of the huge functions is to um, is to deal with discipline. Um, but I'm I'm still uncertain about that, and I don't know that I would go so far as to say. Um, that I would agree on that front. Um, uh, again, part of this being that uh, I can imagine a world where we have police unions bargaining for this, and if we continue to have political pressure um, that that suggests that there's a different view of what use of force should look like, that elected officials and that management are going to have to take um, are going to have to take a different line. Um, I think instead, and this is part of my worry. Um, there's an assumption, if we take it out of the collective bargaining realm, that there's a generally agreed upon understanding of what police use of force should look like, right? If the if the union isn't dealing with this, then everyone else agrees. And I don't think that's true. And I think we have a lot of studies that indicate this. This goes to um, to kind of the conversation about about um, about body cameras. Uh, there's a, there are a lot of studies that show that people view body camera footage and have very different reactions about what is or isn't acceptable use of force. So it, it's not clear to me that taking that off the table is necessarily going to. Isn't that the role of the legislature to come up with those sort of decisions, whether it be the state or the city level? So I mean, it seems yes. So yes, I mean, and this is this is one of the issues, right? So the legislature should be should be doing should be doing this overarching job. And part of this also, though, it's a question about discipline versus criminal law versus a whole lot of other uh, regulatory apparatuses. All right, I think this is the time of the show where we transition uh, to. Uh, talking about optimism, very often uh, during this period of COVID, we we turn pretty negative on everything, and I think it's also a good thing to end on a positive note. So I'm going to go around the room and try to ask people what to end uh, on a positive note with. So let's go back to my first speaker, uh, Michael Moscow. Michael, uh, what are you optimistic about? Well, I'm optimistic about our country. You know, we've been through crises before, 9/11 the 0809 financial crisis. I'm sure that we're going to work our way through this recession, this very difficult recession. But we're adaptable and entrepreneurial, and we did it before, and I'm very confident we'll do it again. Okay. Matthew Friend, a comedian, what are you, what are you optimistic about? Uh, I'm optimistic about my generation, uh, Gen Z, uh, the TikTok generation. We saw what my generation was capable of in terms of 
uh, their effect on a recent Trump rally a couple months ago really got under his skin. Uh, and like him or not, I mean, you can see the power of what happens when my generation starts to mobilize. And I'm excited about the fact that it seems that with an increased level of technology, the awareness and uh, desire to get on and vote is growing amongst my generation. And my generation is what keeps me optimistic, I would say. I think it's really up to young people to enact change. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I'm also optimistic about comedians. I think we have a lot of material as evidenced by uh, last, <laughs> the last debate. So uh, we'll see what happens in the next one, if there is another debate, Larry. Thank you. Julius, what are you optimistic about? You know, as a police officer, uh, and that's where I spend the most of my time and the most of my focus, I am optimistic that um, there's going to be a culture shift, that there's going to be a change. Um, hearing folks like Rob Harris speak, understanding the public um, pay attention, uh, and for many folks, the first time of them even hearing uh, about the role of police unions um, from a policy perspective, hearing folks consider uh, different ways that we can police, that's exciting. Uh, when I think of the most important roles of policing, uh, it's to ensure the welfare of the constitutional rights of every citizen. And, uh, you know, we don't always uh, hit that mark, but as long as we're moving in the direction to do that to the best of our abilities, uh, that excites me, and I think that really beginning to do that. Great. Will? Well, I'm, I'm optimistic about the level of awareness and the, I think the breadth of a realization that, we're at a, that we have a really serious problem with police violence and racism. And um, I think we've been in situations like this before and haven't necessarily solved those problems. But I think, you know, here we are in another opportunity to take some real, a really serious look at the problem. Kate? I'm going to have to agree with Matthew Friend and say uh, I'm optimistic about people in their 20s uh, and, and, and younger. I, don't, I can't do the generations. I never understand what the right time frame is. But, uh, I, you know, I teach students in their 20s, and uh, they're bright and aware and thoughtful and mobilized. So, so they, they make me optimistic. Great. Ben? Well, I'm a pessimist, but still, uh, I'm, uh, um, I'm optimistic that we're having this conversation. I've been optimistic and, in, again, kind of measured ways given the state of the world by a lot of the conversations this summer by the fact that I think um, we're seeing more people think really deeply about uh, structural issues in policing, but, but more broadly, um, and I'm optimistic that, um, you know, as to, to Will's point, that maybe some of these conversations are going to have different outcomes than they have in the past. Okay. Uh, Rob Harris. Okay. Well, I don't want to steal uh, material from everybody else, but obviously I, I t I'm similar to, to Julius, but I, I think I might phrase my optimism slightly, slightly differently, but same point. Yeah, I, I, I am very optimistic that the uh, professionalism of officers, the majority of officers of the country uh, who have dedicated themselves to a profession that very few are willing to choose to do, um, will actually, at the end of the day, carry the day. I think that professionalism um, will move us to a point where people who are rooted in reasonableness can sit at a table and, and define something that will ultimately make the profession better. But I am very optimistic at the professionalism of, of our officers throughout the country. Rick Banks, do you have any concluding remarks of optimism? Well, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a pessimist. I would say I'm a realist. 
Uh, I can say that I'm feeling optimistic in a way that I would not have expected, which is that I'm feeling more positive about police unions, at least in California, uh, than I would have imagined uh, many months ago. So uh, hopefully the future will bear out uh, that optimism and show it not to be misplaced. Well, something I learned from this call is what Matthew Friends called plug alert. So next week uh, on What Happens Next, we're going to have a special one on elections. We're going to have Andy Shapiro talk about uh, how to use the courts in case there's a close election. Uh, Nate personally will speak, as will Michael Gordon uh, from Google, Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, Doug Rivers, and Michael Holt. We'll talk about his book on the very close election of 1876 that was disputed um, and learning how the Congress and the legislature can get involved in dispute elections as well. And I've assigned three chapters from that book which I want you to check out. Okay, that ends this session of What Happens Next. Thanks for our speakers for their participation. I'd like to thank our listeners, uh, and thank you for everything. Thanks, Rick, and uh, goodbye, and you can disconnect. Have a great day.